Well, he was quiet, and he hadn't said a word. Like everybody else, he sat there completely stunned, which is really pretty remarkable because he was always the kind of guy who had something to say. He's always the first one to offer his opinion, the first one out of the boat, the first one to get his feet wet. He was quiet, though, not because he had nothing to say or nothing was on his mind. He was quiet because he was thinking. The last hour had been rough. He had seen one of his friends leave. That bothered him. He had heard his best friend, his master, his savior, say some pretty troubling things and share some pretty troubling news. That probably bothered him. He knew things were going to change, and he was nervous. He was at the edge of everything that was familiar. There was no way he was going to let the others know, but he was asking some really tough questions, questions like, could he really do what Jesus was calling him to do? When the world pressed in, would he quit? Or probably the scariest question of all, what would happen if he failed? But in a matter of minutes, Jesus would set Peter completely free. So I'll let you in on something that I'm learning. Every Christian who seriously seeks to follow Jesus asks some very similar questions. We're plagued by those same insecurities. Make disciples? Like, are you sure? I don't know if I could do that, Jesus. Really? There's so much I don't know. There's so much I haven't figured out even in my own life. Are you calling me to do that? What would happen if I fail? What if I get it wrong? And if we have the courage to look into those deep fears, we're going to see an even deeper truth. And it's the same truth that Jesus is going to remind Peter of in this text this morning. But sadly, here's what most Christians do. Most Christians settle. We play it safe. It's been said that The Christian life has not been tried and found wanting, but it has been found difficult and left untried. I believe Jesus has more for us than simply settling. So this morning, we're starting a short three-week series called Rooted, and yes, we're doing a discipleship experience this fall called Rooted, and yes, this is sort of tied to that a little bit. And so in full disclosure, here's what I'm hoping over these next three weeks. I hope these next three weeks awaken something in you that may have been sleeping for a long time, namely, to be and to make disciples. I believe Jesus has given us everything that he's called us to do in order to follow him in making disciples, but it isn't a program, it isn't a platform, it isn't a group, it isn't anything you go through, it isn't anything you complete, it isn't anything you recite. When you strip away all the clutter all the noise, all the distractions, and boil it down to what really matters. I believe Jesus' plan for discipleship is rooted in three declarations, and we're going to look at them this morning. These three declarations show us that a life spent that's faithful to Christ is rooted in Christ. A life that's faithful to Christ is rooted in Christ. And so before we even get to the text this morning, which, by the way, is John 15, if you want to turn there, you can put your finger there or scroll there on your phone, John 15. But before we get there, though, we've, we've got to back up because we're making a literal thousand-year leap in history from where we've been in Psalms all the way up to this scene in the New Testament. 
And so we've got to kind of do the Bob Ross thing a little bit here. We've got to paint a happy little backdrop to figure out exactly what we're looking at. So John 13 through 17, here's the big chunk. And then we're going to eventually, eventually get into John 15. John 13 through 17 are known as Jesus' farewell discourse. All five of these chapters take place 12 hours before he's crucified. So what's going on in these chapters, 13 through 17? A couple quick highlights. Jesus and his disciples are in town for Passover, okay? And Passover in Jerusalem is like Hall of Fame week in Canton, right? Everybody's in from out of town. There's lots of money spent. There's lots of parties. Everything's festive. There's lots of buzz in Jerusalem at this point. On the first day of the holiday, Jesus, by now a well-known but controversial rabbi, secures a rented room for his followers to celebrate Passover dinner together. It's a rented room where they're going to have a conversation. And like any friends or family having dinner together, they talk. But this conversation is going to be unlike any conversation any of them have ever had before. At an early point in the meal, think appetizer, Jesus takes a servant's towel and he wraps it around his waist and he goes around the room and one by one washes his disciples' feet. Probably would have taken about a half an hour and it would have been baffling to them. Now then he says some pretty incredible things. He says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to deny me. Oh, and I'm leaving but don't worry because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to empower you to do incredible things, even better than the things that I've done. And, oh, he's going to live in you. All of this over dinner. Their jaws must have hit the floor. Like betraying, denying, you're leaving. Like, wait, what? And the Holy Spirit's going to live in us? Like this temple-dwelling, pillar of fire leading, sea-splitting, Holy Spirit of God is going to live in us. Are you serious? And Jesus says, yes. Then after dumping this dump truck load of theology on these guys, Jesus says, good dinner, let's go. Those are the last words of John chapter 14. He says, let's move, let's go from here. So the disciples get up from their table tie their sandals on their freshly washed feet, stomachs full of food, heads full of questions. The evening is cool. It's late March in Jerusalem, probably. Jesus knows what's ahead of him, and he knows that his best friends are going to be scared, spitless, when all of this actually hits. Judas's departure is just over their shoulder, Peter's denial is hanging in the air like a thick fog. And so as they shuffle down a Jerusalem street, Jesus wants to give his closest friends a gift. He wants to give them some assurance. He wants to provide them with certainty. And so these are more than just his last words in John 15 to his disciples. These are the everything around his vision for these men, this, this dream that he has over them, and by extension, everything he would want for us to know as we consider what does it mean to be and make a disciple. So three declarations of a life rooted in Christ, all of that brings us to John 15, verse 1. Let's pray. God, again, as we turn our hearts to your word, um, I just ask that you would encourage us. I pray that 
Jesus' words would not just be words on a written page, but they would be words that are pointed right at our hearts. We would hear what you would have for us. Thank you for your spirit that's in this place. Open our eyes and open our hearts. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So three declarations of a life rooted in Christ. Here's the first one. I am becoming. I am becoming. Take a look in John 15, verse 1. Here's what Jesus says. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So what do we see here? Just a few things right off the top. We see who Jesus is, what he says he is. He says, I'm the true vine. And then we see what the father is. He's the vine dresser. And then what the father is doing. He's working in the vineyard. And so in typical Jesus teaching, he's using a metaphor or a parable. So if you remember from a past series, parables are these ideas. They're a memorable story that teach a valuable lesson in a creative way. And Jesus is doing that again here. Here's what's fascinating about this parable, though. And this blew my mind when I read it. So Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room. Okay, and this is John 13 and 14. And they start to move from the upper room. They're going to go through the old city in Jerusalem, past the temple, and on their way to the Kidron Valley, eventually to the Mount of Olives, all right? And so I know you don't have the Google Maps route saved in your head, so I don't either. So here's the thing. Where they would go, they would meander through alleyways, and they would eventually pass the temple. You know, the temple is like the focal point of worship for God's people. Everything happens in the temple. This is where feasts are celebrated. This is where offerings are made. This is where atonement happens. This is a meeting place with mercy. And as you're walking past the temple, there's this giant archway, about 40 feet high. It's, you, you cannot miss it. And it's 40 feet high. It would go all around the outside of the temple. Take a wild guess at what is carved on the outside of that archway. A vine. And so as Jesus, as he's trying to distill this image of discipleship for these men who are walking with them, they pass the temple, and he says this. He says, you know that thing that you love? That thing that is like the center point of before you can even enter to worship, this thing that is such a big part of your religious and cultural heritage, that's a vine. I am the vine. You think that's a big deal. You think the life in the kingdom is all about sacrifices and rituals and ceremonies. Yes, but no, it's about me, and I'm about to change everything. He says, I am the true vine. But there's something else we need to see here, because all that's interesting, but Jesus is making a very practical point, and here it is. The Father is working on the vine. Specifically, what do we see the Father doing? Two things, and maybe you caught them. First off, what do you see him doing is he's removing the dead wood, And he's pruning the live wood or the fruitful branches. So first, removing the dead wood. Dead wood in a vine is worse than fruitlessness. Dead wood harbors disease and decay. Dead wood hangs out in places where fruit would grow or could grow if it wasn't there. Now think about how the disciples would have heard this. Judas just left like an hour ago at most. And here's the sobering thing we need to think about. Proximity to Jesus doesn't mean affection for Jesus. 
Just because you're around Jesus doesn't mean you love him. I know plenty of people like that. They have proximity to Jesus. They go to church, right? They enroll their kids in all kinds of stuff. They do stuff. They're around. They've got scripture verses and cool fonts hanging on the walls at home. But just because you're around Jesus doesn't mean you love him. With Jesus, discipleship is not proximity to, it's affection for. You know, here's the sobering thing about Judas, if you think about it. Judas followed Jesus every other place where these guys went. He was with James and John. He saw him turn water to wine. He saw him walk on the sea. He saw all of this stuff, the same stuff that all the rest of these guys got to see. He actually hugged Jesus. But on the other side of that embrace were 30 pieces of silver that he was counting on to bring him satisfaction. 99% of Judas' life with Jesus was right. Think about that. But in the last 12 hours, the mask fell off and his heart was exposed and he fell away. All because of stupid silver. And so it doesn't do us any good to mince words, like I'm kind of constrained by the text right out of the gate. If your life doesn't bear fruit, it may be because you're looking for satisfaction somewhere other than Jesus. And if you're looking for satisfaction somewhere other than Jesus, whatever that idol thing is in your life, you're going to eventually be a fruitless branch. And if you're a fruitless branch, it's because you're not connected to Jesus. You may have proximity to, but you don't have affection for And so, again, I'm kind of constrained by the text right out of the gate. But if if you're not connected and have an affection for Jesus, what are you waiting for? Call out the vanity of that idle thing in your life and bend the knee and start to experience life on the vine. So that's the first thing we see the father doing is he's taking away dead wood. Here's the second thing we see the father doing, pruning fruitful branches. Now, This is for you if you're here this morning and you call yourself a believer or if you call yourself a Christian or a Jesus follower. If those are words that you would use to describe you, this is you. And this is an even harder truth to hear. Connection to Jesus doesn't mean affection for Jesus. Just because you're connected to Jesus doesn't mean that you love him. There's a big difference between Jesus being your savior and him being Lord of your life. And so if you're connected to Jesus, that's awesome. Like, that's great. You're in the kingdom, and that's, that's cool. But I believe that there's more to life in the kingdom than just showing up. So what makes the difference? Not connection to, but again, affection for. And like, just to be, again, for me, the reason this is such a big deal to me is because it so clear, closely mirrors my own story. I spent years with proximity and connection and no affection. And the only person that was missing out on that was me. Like, no joy there. Something interesting to me about both of these actions, especially pruning. Pruning initially looks destructive. Initially. But God loves you enough to remove whatever distracts you from fruitfulness. So why do we miss pruning? Okay, and I'm just going to be, this is me. I think there are four things that I see in my life where I miss pruning. I don't want God to prune me. I don't like it. Here's four reasons why. And maybe you can identify with one or more of these. Here's the first one. We miss the benefit of pruning because we view pruning as failure. 
This is pretty easy to understand because pruning is not fun. Pruning means that there are things in my life that shouldn't be there, and that is a huge shot at my pride. And so when I feel God start to move in and, like, the pruning shears get close to these things in my life that I know he needs to cut out, I kind of want to keep them. And I go, no, 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 like, I can keep those right. And he goes, no. My pride makes me view pruning as a failure. There's something wrong with me, and that's bad. No, there's something wrong with me, and that's good because I serve a good God. God takes care of the garden. God tends the garden. God protects the garden. God cultivates the garden. And so success in the garden depends completely on the ability of the gardener. Don't mistake pruning for punishment. Second reason we miss pruning is because we try to prune on our own. (laughs) That's really kind of a variation of the first one. But we try to prune on our own because we know what's best in our life and we know what needs to go and what needs to stay. So thank you very much, Holy Spirit of God. I've got this. This is Peter's perpetual problem, and it's the pride that we all have. What's underneath the impulse to prune my own life? Because I believe I know what's best for me. (laughs) It's a terrible confession, but it's true, right? I'm trusting my wisdom about me rather than God's wisdom about me. How arrogant is that? And so the best practice to counteract this impulse is to say, God, show me. Do you ever pray prayers like that? Scary prayers. God, show me because he's good. Thirdly, we miss the benefit of pruning because we think pruning is a one-time thing. How about this, right? Sounds like this. Sounds like I walked an aisle once. Like I confessed Christ. I remember I was baptized. Like I'm good. I've always kind of been a Christian, right? So here's my question. What kind of gardener would only visit his garden once? Why would God do that? You always need pruning. I always need work done. I don't stop until I'm done. Until my eyes close and I'm out of here. God always wants to work, and so we should welcome that. Fourth thing, and then we'll move on. We miss the benefit of pruning because we privatize pruning. This one sounds like this. Well, like, if I need God's corrective work in my life, I'm not going to tell anybody about that because that's really embarrassing. What's underneath that? Like, simply, fear of man and shame. Because if you really knew what needs cut out of my life, you wouldn't think very much of me. Ever say something like that? What's the gospel say there? You can spend your life trying to prove yourself worthy, valuable, right, or impressive. Or, 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 you can rest in the good idea that the best thing, the truest thing about you is something that nobody can take away, that you are created in the image of a God who loves you, pursues you, died for you, and now works in you and on you so that he can work through you. God prunes what he loves. And so it's not failure. So that's the first declaration. I am becoming. The first declaration is a formative thing, and it is very good. I am becoming. Here's the second declaration of a life rooted in Christ. I am dependent. I am dependent. Take a look at verse 4. Now, here's where this gets even crazier. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And now Jesus imagines two possible scenarios. Here you go. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We're going to come back to that in a second. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. One key principle when you're reading your Bible is you look for a word that's repeated. Okay, maybe you know that. This is Bible study like 101. So what word is repeated here? He says it seven times. What is it? Abide. Okay, or maybe your Bible translation says stay or remain. So it's seven times. So we're going to do a really quick study on what that word means because it's an incredibly rich word, abide. So in the Greek language, the language that the New Testament was originally written in, there were six words for abide. Okay, Jesus could have used six words there, but he chose one. It's the same word all seven times okay, throughout the passage actually. Here's the first word. The first word means to stay, like behave yourself, stay put. We say this to kids, right? Just stay there and behave yourself. Don't do anything. Don't screw anything up. Just sit there. Stay. Second word is to stay like to lodge in a place. Like I can say, like, I stayed in Cleveland for three days. Okay, I stayed there. There's variations of that. Those are like three or four. And then there's another word that says to stay as in like to remain as against an attack, like a lineman before the ball snaps, like to stay, like to stand your ground. But then there's this last word that says to stay as in to remain in physical proximity with. Take a wild guess which one of these words Jesus uses here. Physical proximity. That's huge because the first thing he wants these guys to know is not, don't behave yourselves. That's not what I'm talking about, right? Don't just like hang around and stay in a place. In fact, it's the opposite. Don't just like stand your ground. All of those things are going to come up later, especially in Paul's letter. But the first thing he says is, I want you close to me. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus' first command for these disciples after Judas departs is stay close to me. Why? And the text continues. Because apart from me, you can do a couple of things. Apart from me, you can do something. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. These are devastating verses for our pride. So we need to stop and sit on this for a bit. Do you realize how offensive that verse is to a modern sensibility? Apart from me, you can do nothing. You have no power in yourself to do anything that matters. That's unbelievable. What is he saying here? He's saying that you and I, we neither set the course for nor are we the source for our spiritual achievement in this life. If anything good happens in my life, around my life, or through my life, it's because Jesus did it. You may pour your cereal in the morning, but satisfaction comes from Jesus. You may want the best for your kids, but their spiritual health belongs to Jesus. You may work hard at your job, but financial security comes from Jesus. You may love your spouse, but the courage and the strength to remain faithful come from Jesus. You may read your Bible every day, but wisdom and humility come from Jesus. You get the point? So let's put those two thoughts together. 
If I'm abiding in him, this is his command, fruit will bear in my life. And all of that fruit is ultimately traceable back to him. He gets the glory. We are immeasurably valuable and profoundly unable. And here's why that's a sweet declaration. Because a life that rests on my ability is a life that is too small to satisfy me. A life that rests on my ability is a life that is too small to satisfy me. So I did something this last week that I've wanted to do for a while. Uh, I joined the Cool Kid Club. I got a standing desk. Okay? I don't know if you know this, but you're not supposed to sit at work anymore. This is bad for you. You're supposed to stand. Okay? So um, Micah's got one. Miles has one. Lori has one. Like, there's a couple of us around the office who have, like, saved up, and, like, we got our own little standing desk. So I bought it. I'm so excited. The thing, like, I watch, I'm tracking the number, like, I'm hitting refresh on my phone every 10 minutes to see where it is. It shows up, like, one night last week. And so I come in, like, I think it was, like, Thursday night or something, and I'm here, and I'm, I'm putting this thing together. I lay all the pieces out on the floor, and it's electronic. Yeah, serious business. So, like, I push the button, and it goes, oh, it's so cool. So I'm putting the thing together. I lay it out on the floor. All right, I got the little, little cross beams there. I hook the little brain up to it. I hook the little, the little push button thing. I tighten everything up. And I'm so excited. I'm like, yeah, this is going to be so cool. I move all my furniture. I get it set right where it is. And so then I push the button and nothing. And I'm like, geez, figures. So here's what I do. And maybe none of you do this, but I do this. I overthink it and I theologize it. And I go, well, God doesn't want me to have a, a good one because he knows that I'm going to turn it into an idol. And so God's punishing me. Like, terrible theology happens at 10 o'clock at night. It's not good. Don't do theology at 10 o'clock at night. So I'm sitting there, and I'm going, now I'm going to have to return this stupid thing, and I'm going to have to, like, package it all back up. And, oh, what a headache. And then I look down on the floor, and I go, oh, maybe I should plug it into the wall. <laughs> stupid analogy. And now you're all going to give me a hard time because I can't operate a machine with five buttons on it. But I think Christians live like that all the time. We have this dream of what we want to see happen, and we build things in our life to ensure that this thing happens, and then when it actually comes time to deliver, there's no power there. Because we've been resting on our ability, we wonder why things don't happen. So some of you here this morning, you're facing a challenge that God's calling you to step out into. It could mean bringing integrity to your workplace. It could mean having a difficult conversation. It could mean bringing reconciliation to a fractured relationship, and you are scared. Maybe God's calling you to take a risk, something that he's laid in front of you and he's put on your heart, and it won't shut up, but you're scared. It could mean maybe God's got a dream in your heart, a vision, that, something that you want to see happen for his kingdom, and you don't know how to do it. Or maybe it's a burden, like you're motivated by something that you see in your world, and you go, that, that is not right. I got to step up into that. And you sense that if you were to follow God down this path, it could contribute to a legacy that way outlives you and a story that is way bigger than you. And here's where we get stuck. We get stuck because we believe that the ultimate success rests on us. It doesn't. If God is calling you to do something, success doesn't land on your back. That's a weight that's too big for you to carry. Jesus is doing us a huge favor here by offending our pride because anything that's big enough to celebrate isn't something that you can do on your own strength. 
And so Jesus' word for you is stay close to him, learn what he wants you to do, jump in with both feet, put yourself in a place that requires his wisdom, his strength, his love, and then he gets the glory for it. Many Christians stay stuck because we simply do not trust Jesus to show up. It's a terrible indictment on our faith. And so we do things that we can manage. Now, a quick word of caution before we move on to this third declaration. This doesn't mean that you get to do what you want and then blame God when he doesn't show up. Right? That verse 7, this whole, like, do what you want. and This isn't like Robin Williams' genie in a bottle. Like, boom, I'm just going to do whatever you want me to do. That's not how this works. Why does Jesus start with abide? Because he says, if you are abiding in me, you're going to want what I want anyway. Part of being a disciple is converted affections. This isn't like, God, I believe in faith that you want me to go buy that big old thing, and then he doesn't show up, and you go, where were you, God? God, what do you want? Show me what you want my life to be. Prune away the stuff that doesn't need to be there, and I will walk forward because I'll understand confidently what you want me to do. So that's the second declaration of a life rooted in Christ. I am dependent. Third declaration of a life rooted in Christ. Here it is. I am loved. I am loved. Take a look in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And here's this word again. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So there's that word abide again, but now Jesus extends it. He says, abide in my love. Why does he add this? This is really important, so you've got to track with me. He's already said that we need him to become everything he wants us to be. And then he says, we need him to do everything that he's calling us to do. And now he just says, rest in my love. Why does he end with that? How many of you have ever been in a human relationship that sounds like this? I'll love you if you... Or I'll only love you if you do this. This contractual, transactional, terrible thing. Human relationships can be like that. And Jesus is putting these things in order because he wants to show us that his love for us is not like that. It's the complete opposite. The world says, prove your love, prove your value. The gospel says, just, I'm just going to declare your value. I love you with no strings attached. You can only go where God's calling you to go and do what he wants you to do if you can rest in who he says you are. That you are loved. You are his child. I don't love you for what you can do for me. He's already said you can't do anything for me. I love you because of who you can become in me. So you don't have to prove yourself to him. You don't have to work for his affection. You don't have to work hard to make him smile. This is why the gospel is ridiculously beautiful. To believe that my creator God is for me, working me, and loves me without any strings attached. Like, there is no other relationship like that. I want to speak to a very specific group of people this morning. You're here and you don't feel lovable. You sit here and in your darkest moment, you go, how could a pure, holy God love me? Doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know what I've done? Doesn't he know what I hide? And so when you hear these words, 
that God loves you unconditionally, you go, nah, too good to be true. Because we're told if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And the gospel is the thing that sounds too good to be true and is true. And so if you sit in that spot where you go, how could a holy God absolutely purely love me with no strings attached? My answer for you is Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the gospel. Tim Keller would put it this way. He says the, the, the truth of the gospel is you are more sinful than you'd ever want to admit, and you are loved more than you'd ever dream. And then, here's the cool thing, like to tie this all up in a bow, the last verse of this passage, take a look at verse 11, just super quick. Here's what he says. He says, I've spoken all of this to you for two reasons, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Full. Now, put this all together. Twelve hours before he has nails put through his wrist, Jesus is saying, what will bring you joy? What kind of love is that? For him to think, to know what's ahead of him, and then he goes, what's going to bring that person joy? To know that they are my child. And so I need to speak this over them so that my joy may be in them and so that their joy may be full. The end result of all this abiding, all this choosing Jesus over idols, all this pruning, all this remaining is so that you can have joy in him and that his joy can be in you. So that's the third declaration of a life rooted in Christ. I am loved. I'm becoming, I'm dependent, and I am loved. So Peter sat there in stunned silence, but that silence wouldn't last Typical of Peter. In a couple of weeks, he would stand up in front of a crowded room and he would give the gospel to a group of people. It's the first real sermon in the history of the church. It's in Acts 2. You can go read about it. And then a few years after that, he wrote a letter to churches in Asia Minor that was passed around. And I want to read the first paragraph of that letter to you and just see if you can't hear Jesus' words in here. Here's what Peter had to say. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's 1 Peter 1. Faith rooted in love, love that abides, abiding that is characterized by overwhelming joy. You think Peter got it? I think so. A life that's faithful to Christ is a life that is rooted in Christ. 